beer. Uh, in today's hot seat is Lindsay Peterson. Lindsay Peterson is a brand strategist and author of the best-selling book, uh, Forging an Ironclad uh, Brand, known for her methodical framework-driven approach to brand building. Lindsay has advised companies from burgeoning uh, startups to national corporations, both B2C and B2B, including Zulily, um, Starbucks, IMDB, and Duolingo. Her background as a PNL owner at Clorox fostered in Lindsay a deep appreciation for using the brand as the North Star for increasing the company's value. Lindsay arms leaders with an empowering uh, understanding of brand and an ironclad brand strategy so they can grow their business with intention, clarity, and focus. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Sabir. It's good to be here. By the way, love this book right here. It is available on Amazon as a as a Kindle book, which that's the version I got. Uh, it's available as a paperback and, and as a hardcover. And I think the audiobook is in, in the works, right? Eventually it will come out. Working on it. So definitely pick, don't wait for the audiobook. Definitely pick it up and start using using this book. Uh, so we will talk about branding, right, Lindsay? Yeah, I'm so excited. So let me ask you, because this is uh, every person on Fiverr, you know, the platform where you can sure. get taskers to do different projects for you. Yep. As soon as you type in branding, can you guess what comes up? Is it a four-letter word? Yes, it is four-letter word. <laughs> and, and end with an O and have an yep. OG in the middle. <laughs> yep. So everyone, when they're talking about branding and when you search for people who can help you with your branding, it's about brand logos. So is that what you do? Brand design brand logos, Lindsay? You would so not want me to design your logo. Oh my gosh, you would be in such big trouble. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 interesting because brand is such an kind of this large and maybe nebulous, sometimes intimidating uh, realm. And so something that's a tangible manifestation of brand, which the logo is kind of, it's, it's like, okay, well, I can point to that. So I'm going to equate brand with logo. By the way, it also happens with other things like brand equals your name or brand equals your advertising or your tagline or your personality or your colors. There's a lot of ways that brand is kind of interpreted as just one of its many manifestations, when actually brand is the whole of what you stand for as a business. Perfect. And we will actually dive into what brand is, and then we want to upgrade the conversation to what is ironclad strategy. So we'll definitely dive into it. So what even is brand? Yeah, right? <laughs> if it's not just a logo, what is it? So brand is the, I think of brand as the thing that you own inside the head of your audience like literally like the real estate inside their mind. What is it that you mean to your audience? It's just your meaning. And that's the sum total of many, 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 many things, including kind of the obvious things, but also including their experience as a customer or as somebody who's heard about it. It's all of those associations, tangible and intangible, that your brand lands in a place in their head that means something to them. So that's what a brand is. So let's use an example, right? 
Well, one of the obvious ones, actually, there are two two obvious ones that come to my, to my mind at least. When uh, when I want to copy a piece of paper, right? I want to Xerox it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the 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 machine could be from Panasonic or Sony or LG or Canon or some other company, but I'm Xeroxing it, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing is when I go to the restaurant. And if I want a soft drink, I say, "Can you bring out a Coke? I want. I would like to have a Coke." They could have, they could have RC Cola. They could have Dr Pepper. It could be Pepsi. It could be Coca Cola or Diet Coke. You know, uh, so th those two things come to my mind immediately when I think about those two activities. Is that is that is that the mental thing you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like that, like it's sort of a, there's a word for this that I can't think of or a phrase for this. Um, another one would be Kleenex oh, yeah. um, or Google. Um, as soon as Tide. you created a for detergent. Yes. Um, once, once there's a verb with your noun brand, um, you've sort of achieved a real estate that's so large in the mind of your customer that it actually includes more than just what you bring to them. Um, but yeah, those those are examples of very successful, maybe even so successful that they're not happy that they got that they've expanded into something that some that that is the category as opposed to just the thing that they bring. Um, but I would say it's a success in that they've achieved a sharp, memorable position in the mind of their customer, which is what we're all trying to do. That's what that's that's the holy grail is to gain the attention of your audience. And those brands did such a good job at gaining that attention that it actually now means something more than merely their offering. Yeah. So it, it, uh, the other thing to me, at least uh, from a brand perspective, is that when I as a consumer walk into whether I'm walking into a physical store or I'm going online, uh, I'm walking into a store, right? Um, there is Clorox brand, right? And then there's Stop and Shop private label brand of the store or Kirkling Signature at uh, at Costco. Clorox brand costs me 2x, yeah. right? Twice yeah. as much as the store brand. But as far as the market share from what i know about clorox it has not lost market share nope. you know there's there's enough market penetration for the private label brand but the thing is my association with the brand itself with with clorox is so uh, ingrained that if i pick up the store brand and i come home with that uh i might not have a home because my wife might kick me out <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like the, the it's with brand, there's, there's a number of angles to this one is, and we'll talk more about this later. What's in it for the business? Like, why is this an important part of your leadership? Um, the other is what's in it for the consumer? You know, why, is, why does this have utility for the customer? Um, and in the, in it's in times of recession, really highly trusted brands actually outperform the market. They actually gain market share, even though they tend to be priced at a premium. Um, almost by definition, they're priced at a premium if they're preferred brands. They actually do better in general than in non-recessionary economies. And the wow. reason 
is um, that when in some the the economic utility of brand to a consumer is it reduces risk. It reduces the risk that your wife is going to be mad at you, right? It reduces the risk that you just wasted money, that you wasted money on something that's not going to perform or live up to its promise. And it also reduces the risk of wasting time. So there's, um, in some ways, like in, in one of the ways that you can think of brand is it's a relationship between a business and the customer. And just like with any relationship, it could just be, you know, one of your friends, you have a higher confidence that that friend is going to come through for you than that the average person or somebody who you've never met is going to come through for you because you have relationship capital that is built up. The same goes for a brand. Clorox has a lot to lose by selling you a product that's not going to perform, but an unknown brand doesn't have as much to lose. It's this, so you accrue this, um, this trust, just like with any relationship that delivers on its promise, a promise is made and delivered faithfully, uh, that happens. And, and therefore it reduces actual and perceived risk for, for the customer. So that's, and that's actually just the economic argument for brand for consumers. There's also the more emotional or aspirational benefit to consumers, which is that buying something that gives you an emotional reward because it's kind of like a friend um, adds meaning to your life. It can add meaning to your life. It's, if it's the right match, if it's the, if the audience and the, and the business are intersecting really nicely, it actually makes their life better. So um, there's a lot of utility to brand that we haven't even talked about the economic value creation for the business. You know, while, while you were talking about the uh, economic, one of my favorite classic shows is Everybody Loves Raymond oh, yeah. on, on TV. It, 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 was, it was an amazing show. Uh, in one of the episodes, Raymond wants to, Ray wants to go to the store and buy the things himself and doesn't want Deborah, his wife, to worry about that, right? So he goes to the store and, and brings back, instead of buying Kleenex, he brings back a, a store brand that has some sort of lotion or aloe on it. And she goes like, well, he goes like, I bought this thing. It's like, uh, you know, you know that I bought like three of these for the one that you would typically buy. We're going to save so much money and, and so on. But she goes like, no, honey, it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. She doesn't want to have a fight, you know? Right. And, and she goes, and then his brother walks in and goes like, uh, it was very odd that she didn't agree with me. He says, well, the thing is she's not going to even use the product because it has some, this kind of lotion on it that nobody really uses, uh, you know, especially in families with kids and stuff like that. Uh, so she usually buys the one without the lotion and that's why she buys that brand. So even his brother knows more about his wife's <laughs> uh, Kleenex routine than, than uh, he does, you know. Uh, it's just kind of reminded me of that for, you know, it's just a random thought. Just, just, uh, so if I'm, if I'm a, uh, a leader and, and you, you were uh, one at, uh, for example, at Clorox and you have done that for many of your client companies also, what should I be thinking about from a, from a brand perspective? I'm, I'm sure that it's not, like, like we said, you know, because I, one of the things I can, I, I can relate to here is uh, when somebody says e-commerce, right? They use it to basically mean nowadays on YouTube, it means 
uh, it means um, uh, Facebook advertising with with Shopify, and that's not just e-commerce, you know. And and I'm sure that with when it comes to branding, if I'm a leader running one of these brands, what should I care about, and and how and how many dimensions are there of the brand that I should be worrying about, and and make sure that I address it. Yes, yes, so big. So to kind of like, I mean, the, the first thing that I would advise is go upstream because brand is brand is a tool for meeting your business goal, right? So um, it's a way to kind of lean into your asymmetric strength as a business, just like any strategy is about that. So the brand positioning, because that's kind of what we're talking about here is selecting the most um, value unlocking positioning that you can create. It's the combination of it meets a need for your customer in a way that nothing else does. So it's resonant to your customer, number one. And number two is it's distinctive to you. So the promise, kind of the crux of what you're going to be about as a business, that's what, that's what your brand is. It's going to create the most value for your business if it meets those two things. So it taps a deep need for the customer and it leverages your unique strengths. A really big pitfall with brand strategy is to pick something that's really resonant you know, customers really want it. It's it's a big unmet need, but it's a strength that lots of your peers also deliver. It's a category benefit um, as opposed to a differentiated benefit. Um, a multivitamin, for example. Yeah, I mean, okay. So let let let's think of an example. Um, if one thing I write about in my book, the case of a pancake brand and a pancake brand. So say so the customer need is you know let's say the customer, okay, they want a special Saturday morning with their family. They want a delicious breakfast. They want uh, something a little bit indulgent, but not too indulgent. They want, a, you know, name like five, six things, right? And, um, and then you're like, you think of what you're good at as a business, but then you also look at what your competitors are good at. What are your competitors bringing to this? It's like the Venn diagram of what the customer wants, what the competitor is good at, and what you are good at. What is so common for leaders to do is to pick the thing that the customer wants that they're but that that we pancake brand are good at bringing, but that our competitor is also good at bringing. So in this example, it would be um, the center of the Venn diagram is delicious. Okay, customers want something delicious. We have a really delicious pancake, but the problem is, so is your competitor. In fact, that's what it means to be a pancake. Like you don't get to congratulate yourself for having a delicious pancake. That's called being a pancake brand. And so the problem that delicious is super important, super important. It's just not enough. It's not enough because it's not differentiated. So the, the real unlock comes from identifying the thing that, you bring to this customer that taps into a need for them, but that nobody else brings. Um, so in the, the example I share in my book, it's um, it's not just a delicious pancake, but it leverages this Swedish recipe that my grandmother brought from 
the old country. And it has kind of the attributes of the thin, crispy Swedish recipe. And so it's about Swedish deliciousness, not just delicious, but Swedish. That's something that we can own. Nobody else does that. And what that means is that you don't have to have super deep pockets to register that in the mind of your audience. If you only lean into delicious, then everything that you say and do as a business is going to build the pancake category, but it won't disproportionately build your business. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, it kind of reminds me of, um, uh, you use this example and I want to say rest in peace, uh, Tony Shea of uh, Zappos. Oh, agreed. And Zappos, I think, and I read his book, uh, Delivering Happiness, you know, and, and a phenomenal company. I visited them, their, their headquarters in, in Las Vegas uh, when, when he was oh, around. This was a while ago. Amazing. And um, everything about that business has to do with customer service. And even when you go into the building, the physical space, which not many people get to see, everybody is in a cubicle, everyone. The, the, room, the, the bigger rooms are reserved for, for any kind of meetings or conferences where you don't want to interrupt the public, you know, basically. But everybody sits and it's all about customer service and anyone can pick up that phone to provide that customer service. That's what the company is known for. The other part of it is shipping. Even though the, the goal was to sell shoes, right? But, but the branding around the company had to do with customer service and they went above and beyond uh, delivering that service. It's such a beautiful example in so many ways. Uh, there was white space in that category for excellence in customer service. And it wasn't just about, you know, the wonderful curation of shoes or and now way more than just shoes. That's table stakes. You have to do that. That's, that's a no duh. You have to do that. But customer service, like outrageously good customer service, customers were yearning for that, but nobody else was delivering that. And so Zappos actually built their whole competency around that. And the reason I love that example and, the, and really what makes it such a potent brand is that we haven't even talked about their marketing. They don't have to spend as much on marketing because it comes through in so many dimensions. Every experience the customer has with Zappos is going to reinforce this customer service excellence. Even the kind of really non-sexy decisions like selecting Las Vegas as the shipping port, right? That was so that they could increase speed to the customer. Um, they, ch I mean, they chose their they they chose their headquarter location based on this. Like that's not a marketing decision; it's a real estate decision, and yet it enables them to deliver on their brand promise in a way that gives them an enormous moat. You know, it's very difficult to copy something like that. Um, and that's how they achieve this outsized value. Yeah, I mean, if you think about kind of fun fungibility of funds, you know, everybody has a budget, right? In their case, they took um, the marketing they would have spent money on and may or may not get any kind of return on that, right? Uh, depending on who's running the marketing to literally move it to shipping cost, right? We want to deliver within two days. We want to deliver for our VIP customers next day. It's so much to the point that my kids growing up, the day before school, they would tell me that, dad, we need shoes. We need new sneakers. My feet are big. Why don't you tell me a week before? No, you, you're going to get it from Zappos. It's going to be delivered tomorrow. Don't worry about it. Just order it. 
they knew they knew Zappos' commitment to delivery <laughs> as kids. Oh, that's so good. It's like our kids are not lear learning like planning skills and impulse control because of Zappos being so responsive. Yeah, I mean, we, we went through now in the examples that we just shared, we talked about kind of compelling brands that are doing amazing things, right? What do brands get it, get it wrong? Let's talk about the other side of the coin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, um, if we go back to like what, what the, the, almost like the cognitive purpose of brand is to gain the attention of your desired audience initially to gain to gain their attention that's the hardest thing you do in marketing right is is to gain awareness to gain their awareness their attention um and then to lodge into their brain to be memorable and to eventually through the product experience whether tangible or intangible to gain their love to gain their loyalty their affinity um so what a lot of times happens, maybe most of the times happens, is that leaders don't make a choice. They 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 don't really choose something to stand for. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And I understand it as a business owner myself. It feels scary to choose where you're going to put a stake in the ground. Um, it's kind of like, well, wait a second. Does that mean that I'm going to walk away from revenue over here? Um, the problem is that, and this is like, you know, I don't need to tell you this, it's marketing 101, but you can't be all things to all people. It's, it's the brutal mathematical truth is that you actually have to choose. You have to choose where you have a right to win and to, with humility, deliver on that. So that probably the largest or most common mistake I see is just not doing this exercise at all. Um, kind of staying in this place of hedging. Um, and over time, you, you, can't, you can't gain cognitive attention with a diluted idea. And you certainly aren't gonna create a memorable and kind of like affinity driven relationship if you're choosing something that's vague or not very brave. Um, consumers are smart. so. That's the main, my, you know, if nothing else, like gain the courage to choose and you don't do it blindly and don't do it without analysis. But, um, but when you stay in a place of hedging, you kind of prevent love from unfolding and you prevent kind of a meaningful positioning in the mind of your audience. They're just not going to grasp it. Yeah. You know, um, uh, kind of a David and Goliath kind of a, um, example is, um, and actually, in my opinion, one of the biggest return on investment, on marketing investment, $4,500 turn into $1 billion. That's a good return. I'm talking about Dollar Shave Club uh, oh, yeah. versus oh, Gillette. Yeah, the $4,500 video. Yep, not bad. Not a bad return. Not a bad return. So let's talk about that from your perspective. Uh, Dollar Shave Club against a... Uh, industry giant, uh, Gillette. Um, what are yeah. your thoughts? I mean, it's such a perfect example of what I was just talking about. Um, he did, he, they, this team, uh, did, they were so brave. They developed this edged, somewhat edgy, humorous video that became their wedge into this market. It was 
very irreverent, at least by the standards of this category. In his warehouse. <laughs> um, in, in a warehouse and he's cracking jokes. And this is in a category that is so stodgy. Um, so he was brave. He chose something sharp and, uh, and let's not also forget that the customer, there is an unmet need. Razor, there was not innovation in this category, or at least there wasn't business model innovation in the razor category for decades. So there is a customer unmet need that he's filling, and then he's brave enough to take things off the table. This was a subscription service. He wasn't getting broad mass distribution for this razor that's a contrarian thing to do um he was do he was he was innovating the business model by making it a subscription service and he and the personality that kind of that rebel outlaw um fu kind of stance of the brand was number one it was really really grabby like it got your attention it was memorable and it because it was brave it was kind of vulnerable and people respected that and came to love it so um yeah that's what that's what making a choice and not hedging will do for you it gives you leverage it enables you to get an outsized return so if you think about i mean to kind of extend that um you know um strategy there it applies quite a lot to startups, entrepreneurs, and, and uh, small businesses. They don't have multi-billion dollar marketing budget. You know, they're trying to survive and they have very small budget. What, what's your recommendation or advice or strategy for startups and small businesses with, with tiny budgets or small budgets? Yeah. So a large budget can, can cover up all sorts of sin, right? Like if you can spend a lot of money on advertising, um, you can kind of buy your way to awareness. You can buy your way to, you could even buy your way sometimes to getting loyalty by you know buying down the price and that kind of thing. So with enough money, um, you almost can afford to not be focused. When your resources are constrained, you can't afford not to focus. And this is, I'm sure leaders listening to this right now, you know this, like you have to be so judicious about the way you spend your time, who you talk to, what you spend money on, who you hire. Those decisions are so important because you can't afford to be unfocused. The same goes for brand. Um, when you select something potent, you don't have to spend as much money. And if you do end up ultimately, maybe this is way down the line, spending a lot of money, you will simply get a higher return on what you do spend money on. So when you're leaning into something that is unique to you, you're going to get a higher ROI. You really just can't, af you can't afford to hedge when your resources are constrained. For, for a lot of brands, what I see, I mean, I'll call them brands for now, right? And Because we are learning right now in this episode, right? Uh, for some product companies, let's call them that. So for a lot of product companies, to me, it feels like marketing is a transaction, right? And it's not a conversation, right? It's not a conversation like the one we are having. It's more like transaction. I'm going to pay, uh, I'm going to pay CPC, you know, cost per click or impression CPM to Google or Facebook to run these ads and I'm going to get these many transactions out of it, right? It's transaction. 
uh, when when you are creating a brand, that's a conversation. So that when you are not running ads, right, that people still care about. Like if if Clorox is not running a TV ad right now on my TV, I still have need for Clorox. I'm gonna go and buy it. You know, I, it's not like I had to see the ad to go buy the Clorox. You know, it's not. That's the that's the strength of branding. It's like conversation versus transaction. And and uh, one of the guests I had actually in in the previous episode was Stu Heinick, and he talked about good marketers actually think about and spend a ton of energy, right, thinking about the strategy of what they want to execute. Not necessarily they don't think about the 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 budget. As soon as you put the budget there then you could start getting very lazy about thinking. You're going to go like, oh, we're going to give 70% of our budget to Google, 30% of it goes to this and blah, 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 blah. And the return on advertising spend is here. That's there. And we're going to get these many transactions. Okay. Thank God September is over. Now it's October. Restart the same conversation over again. But if you don't have good branding and it's just you're trying to sell products, that's what you're lacking, right? It's the conversation piece. Like there is no conversation. It's a give and take. I saw the ad, I, I bought the thing and that's it. There, I don't really have any kind of emotional uh, attachment to that brand at all. Exactly. You know, there's no relationship. There's no relationship. It's a transaction. And there's a, I've been there, you know, I get the, the, what the the idea of using budget, you know, the, the process of, well, what did we do last year? And like, let's tweak it according to what worked. Um, and some portion of a marketing budget, I'm not going to give like a rule of thumb for what percentage that is, but there is some portion sh- that should go into driving transactions. The problem is it's kind of like having an all sugar diet instead of like mixing it with proteins and healthy fats it will give you energy today. It will drive sales today. But what happens later? What happens when you crash? Um, There's sort of this, you know, just like, again, back to this is about a relationship. It's about building enduring relationships, enduring value. So there is a role for sugar in everybody's diet, or, you know, at least some, some carbs in everybody's diet. There is a role for performance marketing. If you want to have a a high in in consumer packaged goods, we would call it a high repeat business, a business that has not just a trial transaction, but an ongoing, as you say, conversation. That is a much more attractive economic proposition than just driving transactions right away. So I would rather see a nice balance of fat, carbs, and protein, a nice balance of driving the, you know, planting seeds and building the relationship um, that that you might not see a transaction on in the next quarter mixed with things that are going to drive a transaction uh, in the near term. Yeah. I mean, it's basically, it's not like you're just doing shop now, buy now, click this, uh, maybe maybe if it's a food brand in, in that example, or I don't know if it's a supplement that you're trying to sell there with a sugar balance, but you're putting out maybe recipe content, maybe you're putting a, yes. a founder story or something like that, or or what are you doing for the community or whatever that is, depending on the on the brand size. That's exactly right. It's like the and, and I one client of mine once called it. It's kind of like there's a when you're painting a room, you paint the primer coat on before you paint the, the real color on. 
you're going to get, you're going to have a much nicer result and a longer lasting, more vibrant color if you start with a primer coat. So first somebody needs to even have awareness of your business, like that you need to gain their attention to begin with before they're going to be pulled into the, your funnel or your customer journey. Um, but really the holy grail is they're not shopping around for X, Y, or Z widget. They just have thought of your brand and they're just going to that. That's because they have a relationship with you, um, even if it's a burgeoning relationship. That's going to yeah. capture more value and it's going to create more of a loyalty. As you say, it creates a conversation. It also enables you to keep getting better because you're in conversation with those customers and you're learning what's working, what's not. It helps you build an enduring proposition um, with, you know, with a sense of empathy for this person that you're serving, which is really why we're all in business is to, is to have a customer, to serve a customer. Like that's, that's the whole point of this. So when we see that person, not as like, you know, a wallet that's going to fork over some money, but as a person who it, we can be in conversation with, and yes, we'll, we will also have a financial transaction. Hopefully it will be a really mutually beneficial one. Um, that's how we create this meaningful business for everybody involved. Yep. Uh, now, we have talked so much about B2C businesses, right? From razors to shoes and all of those things. Uh, the ironclad strategy, which we should actually jump into it right next, is it just for B2C businesses or is it also for B2B? It is also, it's for both. Because, and let's actually take this for a moment. I think it's a false dichotomy, really, that you know, B2B versus B2C the difference with B2C is that both of us know a lot of B2C brands, whereas B2B brands are often only known by the target audience. So it, it's harder to come up with great B2B brands just in, in a general conversation. But the people who are making purchase decisions on behalf of a business are people. They're, pe they're people, they're human beings that are making these decisions. So when I'm making a decision on behalf of my business, um, I'm Lindsay and I'm making this decision about what software to purchase for my business. And then an hour later, I'm purchasing a soccer ball for my teenager. I'm still Lindsay. I'm a person in both of these instances. Yeah. And by seeing me that way as a, as a B2B company, seeing me as a person who an hour later will be purchasing a soccer ball for her child, um, that alone is a competitive advantage because most B2B businesses don't see me as a human being. Um, they see me as, you know, the ABC Corp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a false dichotomy. Um, there's there, there, there are B2B and B2C are both, you know, business to human, as they say. Um, if, if you're selling to robots or to AI, I can't help you. But if you're selling to a human being, whether it's B2B or B2C, it's the same principles. Um, the, the marketing tactics will be different. You know, your, your organizational structure will be different. Your budget allocation will be different, but your brand positioning, you know, selecting a 
target, you know, sweet spot audience and then delivering on something that they desperately want and you're really good at bringing, the principle is the same, whether it's B2B or B2C. So we're, we're kind of like my business serves kind of, it's roughly half and half, I'd say B2B versus B2C. But I think too much is made of that duality. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's interesting you bring that, that up because uh, one of my guests I had uh, at the beginning of this season, this year, was uh, his name is Sasha Der Evanasian. I, I hope that I didn't torture his name. Uh, he actually uh, founded and it runs a dental products uh, business for dental laboratories. So if you think about the value chain, he is so far removed, right? But he's well known in, the, in his industry, the way he comes up against all of the commodity, because he runs a B2B business in that scenario, right? It, his differ huge differentiation is creative. He's, his brand is known for creativity and innovation, right, in, in, in the industry. That's how in, in an industry where we're talking about dental parts, I'm not talking about crown and dentures, talking about the equipment that makes those things, you know, that he sells to dental laboratories. So it's, it's uh, that's how he has branded his business uh, from, from that perspective. So, uh, and comes with it, not only creativity and innovation comes also um, the, the, the message of quality through how he talks about the brand and, and how the pro products are packaged and stuff. It looks more like you're opening up an iPhone when you get these products wow. in your dental laboratory. To, to, a to a company that if you think about it purely from a parts perspective, it's a commodity business, you know, that could be bought. But the thing is, but the but the attention he has uh, paid to the branding of his company is, is phenomenal, right? In, in an industry which is so far removed from B2B, you know, from, from the consumer, like, a consumer walks into the dentist. The dentist takes the impression, sends it to the laboratory. The laboratory takes it, gives it to the technician that takes and, and builds the crown and those kinds of things for you that you get it back to the consumer. He's on behind that. <laughs> yeah, it's as B2B as it gets. You're making my point for me so well that it's. In a way, it's it's like if I had to think, if somebody forced me to come up with a synonym for brand, it would be differentiation. How are you different? And if your answer is we're not, then I don't want to be an investor in your company, you know, because that's the, the commoditization is the enemy of a strong margin. So because you're just competing on price. So if you want differentiation, then your brand is the tool that kind of taps the customer empathy in order to create that in a sustainable way. So um, whether that, you know, B2B and B2C both have to abide by the laws of differentiation and commoditization. If you don't want to be a commodity, you want to be different. If you want to be different, you embrace brands. It doesn't matter if you're selling to dental offices or to soccer moms. In your book, actually, you you uh, had a very famous quote in there, and, and I really appreciate you putting it in there. It's from Warren Buffett, right? Yes. When he, when he talks about increasing your price and making prayers that you're not going to lose market share. but And actually, knowing his history, one of the brands that he had acquired was Seize Candy. Yep. You know, Seize Candy, uh, from the time he acquired, from time to time, he kept on increasing the price through that company. It didn't matter. People still loved it. They still loved uh, Seize Candy and didn't mind, uh, you know, shelling out another 10, extra 10%. 
uh, for for the for the cost of that candy because they loved it, right? He didn't have to pray for that to lose market share to other. There are so many candy brands out there, you know, just because they just loved it. They loved the brand and they just kept on coming back. This is how I win over CFOs when we're talking about brand and especially um, the marketing leaders on this call probably know this. Like a lot of times CFOs are like, wait, why do I want to invest in brand? Like what's the, what's in it for me? What's the ROI? (laughs) What's the ROI? What's in it for shareholders? And the answer is it elevates your pricing power. It elevates your pricing power, but that's, uh, that's what a preferred brand commands a higher price than a non-preferred brand. That's actually what a preferred brand means. So if what Warren Buffett says is, you know, every time, if, if, Every time somebody increases their price, if they if, if they have to say a prayer to to, to the gods of consumer demand, that demand doesn't drop when that happens, then I, that's not a product I want to be an investor in. Um, when you have a compelling brand, price is less part of the purchase decision. And you can just think of your own purchase decisions as a consumer yourself price may be second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth on your list, but the the brands that you really love, you're not as concerned about what you're paying in price. That doesn't mean that we as businesses want to gouge people or take advantage of that, just like we wouldn't with any relationship that we want to nourish. But it's a mutually beneficial economic proposition when you have a brand that brings significant value to the customer they're willing to part with more of their money for this and you can use that extra margin to bring even more value to them to pay your investors for r d for whatever your business goals demand Um, but the the elevation of pricing power is what makes this a financial no-brainer yeah, I mean, I, two brands that I can think of when, when you were uh, saying that. One is Netflix, right? Since its existence, Netflix has increased its uh, its uh, monthly subscription fee uh, while delivering more value. Obviously, you know, there's Netflix originals and so much, so much more content coming up. Uh, like every month, you see so many releases of new content um, that I, I, I still pay for it. I mean, I've been a pretty long. I mean for the longest time. I used to even get the DVDs back in the day. You know, that's how long I've been a customer. It doesn't matter. That's one example that, that comes to mind immediately. The other one is magical experience at Disney, right? If I have a family with my kids and and if, if Disney increases its price, doesn't mean that I'm not gonna go to Disney. You know, I'm, uh, you know, more people are going to Disney than, than ever in history, you know? Yeah, they bring so much value. It's like they they bring so much value that price is only one of the considerations, not the only consideration that goes into the purchase decision. And that's what we're trying to do to create, you know, thriving businesses is to both deliver on that value while also sharing some of that value creation through margin with our customers. So when we're talking about uh, value creation, right? It's kind of a intersection of uh, three different things. So let me clarify that: uh, rational, functional, and emotional. Right? Yep. What I see for a lot of brands that don't do branding right, I see that they overemphasize functional. Right? 
it's a 12-pack blah, blah, blah. It lasts 30% more battery power, right? It's very functional, and they're relying on the rationality of the consumer to say, oh, this package has 30% more liquid in it or whatever, right? Right? Um, what is the right intersection of those three things that, that, that I just, those three attributes I just mentioned that makes for a, a successful brand? Yeah. Oh, I love this. I love this topic. Um, so I have this framework and a lot of brand builders use this It's called the benefit ladder and the benefit ladder is it's a lot like Maslow's hierarchy of needs where you show your, your features, your attributes, kind of the facts about your offering. Those are the rungs on the bottom of the ladder, which enable functional benefits, which in turn enable more emotional benefits, which in turn enable transcendent benefits. And there's a dance here, right? Because it's important to bring functional benefits that's really important. And in, in, in a lot of categories, it is a significant purchase driver. The problem isn't delivering on functional benefits. The problem is stopping with that. So when, so let's use your battery example, like battery life, that's a, um, a, a feature is what, you know, how long the phone battery lasts, which enables a functional benefit of longer talk time. Uh, which enables an emotional benefit of not needing to worry about your phone, which enables a more transcendent benefit of I can focus on the things I love rather than my phone, right? So that's that's a crude benefit ladder. That's the early days of uh, smartphones, if you remember. Yes. yes. It was actually, in the middle of your conference call. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Painful. Um, now, what... I see is, and especially this is especially true in tech in in technology, very product-driven cultures. They're so proud of their functional benefits, they're so proud of their features that they stay there. Uh, because that's what they're that's what they that's what they're building. And the problem is that customers don't buy features, they buy benefits. So I don't care about the, you know electrical charge of the battery i care about my experience of interacting with that phone so it's sort of a it's like a it's an inside out thinking that that kind of blocks the empathy with the customer and the thing is there's a low willingness to pay for battery life there's a high willingness to pay for not having to recharge my phone in the middle of a meeting so when you you, you have to deliver on those functional benefits uh, so that you can enable an emotional benefit. And here's the other thing that, so one mistake is over-focusing on the bottom of the benefit ladder, those features and functional benefits, the rational functional benefits. The other is focusing on the top of the ladder, the transcendent benefits before people know what your business even is. So you were mentioning like early in the life stage of, or the category of smartphones, the focus was on these functional benefits. That's because people didn't know what, what a smartphone is. A smartphone was, right? <laughs> so, in, so where are you, the original question was, where do we focus? What's the proportion of functional, to ra functional, rational, emotional, transcendent? It depends on where you are in your awareness building journey with your audience. When you have an audience who doesn't know what the heck you even are, they need to know the functional benefit. They need to have something to latch onto that feels familiar to them 
so that they're willing to even have a conversation with you. Uh, so that's useful at the beginning. It's very useful. You just don't want to stop there. You don't want to stop there because you'll be leaving money on the table for yourself and you'll be denying the customer a more resonant experience. So functional is important. Don't jump all the way to transcendent when people don't know what your business is. Uh, it's both. And even within the life cycle of a given business, even with a very mature category, there are still always going to be newcomers who need the functional benefit. So that's appropriate to have that in the mix of your messaging. Um, just don't stay there too long. It might feel safe to you, but functional benefits are easy to copy, right? That's why there's an arms race of battery life and smartphones. It's easy to copy. It doesn't give you a competitive mode, but emotional benefits are hard to copy. I mean, one, one thing um, that Steve Jobs did in an amazing way in one, one statement was with, with the launch of iPod, right, back in the day, he did not call it another MP3 player. There were thousands of MP3 players competing in the market. He didn't call his product MP3 player. He said, it's thousand songs in your pocket. Yeah. That's, that's the benefit. I'm not an MP3 player. It's a, a thousand songs in, in your pocket. That's the kind of the emotional and functional combined together. Fast forward to now iPhone 15, you know, or 14, whatever the number is now, right? It's more about, you know, it's it's functional and that I'm a diehard Apple fan. I don't care what Apple puts out, I'm going to go buy it. If they announce it, it's coming out, Apple Watch, iPhone 15, whatever it is, I'm going to buy it because now it, it's giving me that, uh, you know, that emotional connection to the gadgets that extends, my, extends me as a human being, right? So now I'm at a very different level. It's not no longer about MP3 players anymore. Yes. Yeah, it's I love I love this example um, because that it's interesting, like just to, in what is it, the last six, seven, 16, 17 years since since they since Apple launched the iPod. And even at that very early stage uh, with the message a thousand songs in your pocket. There was, there is a functional, there's a nod to rational about that, right? It did start with something very familiar. I know what a song is. I know what my pocket is. That's a cool way to kind of dimensionalize what the product does. And then maybe two years later, the Apple advertising of the silhouettes of people actually dancing and experiencing joy that only music brings, that followed it really quickly. But they started, iPod started with a thousand songs in your pocket. And it continues to have elements of that functional while also delivering on that more transcendent. So with that, like, how does brand strategy create a competitive advantage? You know, I mean, we went through this journey just now, right, together. Yep. From your perspective, because I, I, I know that you, in the book, you, mentioned this, I, I thought, I don't know if it was seven or nine different attributes there yeah. uh, to go, think through. Uh, if you can quickly go through it and then, uh, you know, see how it trans translates sure. to competitive advantage. Yeah, okay, so let's like, so to take a step back, like what we talked early on, like what is a brand? A brand is what you stand for. Brand strategy is the deliberate exercising of choosing what you're gonna stand for. Brand is what you stand for. Brand strategy is the choosing of what you're gonna stand for. 
And the thing is that all businesses have a brand, right? It's like, you know, the, the adage is position or be positioned. So what I contend is that you're better off if you consciously proactively select what you want your positioning to be rather than allowing the market to position you in a way that is not favorable. So that's the kind of the underlying premise is like, whether you do this or not, you're going to have a position. And if you want to unlock this, all of these good things that we've been talking about, you have to do it. You're, you have to do it proactively. You're much more and, likely to land. And if the, if the brand, if the brand doesn't do it, the consumer does it for you, which yes, is dangerous. Exactly. <laughs> the consumer or your competitors. Yeah. I mean, there's, there are forces at work that will gladly step into the vacuum and define you if you don't, if you don't define yourself. In fact, it's also this like kind of act of humility. Like if you don't take the time to define yourself, how can you expect others to do it for you? So that's the, the underlying premise. And what is really um the 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 inspiration for my writing a book about how to do this is that you don't have to have you don't have to be a creative type to to build a brand strategy and we, growing up in my career in consumer packaged goods like in in at Clorox we have to have a world-class brand because our products are, are, are very similar to the competitors. In the case of Clorox bleach, it's literally the same as competitors bleaches. So you have to have a really resonant brand in order to win, in order to not be commoditized. And what I'm sharing in this book is there's a step-by-step -step process that you can use to build that. And you don't have to wait for the muse to visit you to build a brand strategy, you just need to, ref to kind of have this curiosity and open-mindedness to where do we really have a right to win? What does our customer really want? How can we deliver that in a way that others can't? And that, so I have this eight-step method in, in, in the book, Forging an Ironclad Brand, that takes you through the steps to doing this. You don't have to hire somebody to do it for you. You can, um, but it's like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, use these frameworks, each of these steps as a framework to get you to kind of have the leadership courage to put this single stake in the, in the ground. And some people spend six months on it and some spend six hours on it. And there's a really dramatic difference between not doing it at all and doing it for six hours. Like it's like you can get from an F to a B by doing that. So do it, you know, do it, do it yourself or, or hire somebody to do it, but don't be intimidated by it. There's no need for this to be shrouded in mystique. Um, it, you should feel empowered to use frameworks to help you to land on that. One thing that I want to also remind the audience in addition, because I, I think you mentioned it in your book, branding is not just about product sales. Branding is also how how people conceive you, perceive you, right? They're, how they perceive you as a brand. Think about HR, for example, and employment and, and career, having a career in, in, in your company. How do they relate to you? It makes the 
the, that decision of bringing in talent so much easier when you have proper brand. You know, when you, when you like it, then you're almost commoditizing even the talent that walks through that door. I love this point. And I think it's so, um, I've been so inspired in the last two to three years about how brand has been embraced by HR and chief people officers for its ability to draw in right employees and to galvanize and, and retain and celebrate the employees. So it is, it's this, um, it comes back to like, when you choose what you're going to stand for, you're going to draw in people who want that, whether it's customers or employees. So Lindsay, wow, wow, wow. You know, the amount of <laughs> information and advice and insights that we packed in, in the past hour has been phenomenal. From your perspective, Lindsay, what's your number one ironclad strategy insight, $100,000 insight you would like to part ways with uh, to, to the audience. Awesome. Oh, this is so good. Okay, everybody listen up. So the $100,000 piece of advice, maybe million dollar piece of advice is don't conflate brand with one of its many outward expressions. Don't conflate, conflate brand with your name, your logo, your advertising, your performance metrics. Uh, don't conflate it with any of these things that are hopefully a manifestation of that North Star. It ultimately is your largest source of economic value. Uh, it's your largest, it's also your most enduring, but you have to see it for this holistic thing that it is in order to unlock that value, this thing that you own in the mind of your audience. So if you can embrace this holistic thing, you not only create economic value for your business, but you also create a competitive moat. It's really hard to copy brand. Um, you galvanize employees because following a North Star that has a purpose that resonates with them as a human being is motivating and creates meaning alone in their lives. And you can make your company more meaningful and fulfilling for you yourself to lead when you're leveraging something where you really have this right to win and where you're helping customers to live the kind of life that they want to live. Uh, whether that's a rational, ultimately a rational category or a more emotionally laden one, you're in the business of serving this person and that's what's going to create this thriving, flourishing business for you for years, maybe decades to come. Amazing, Lindsay. Uh, audience, if you would like to get in touch with Lindsay, um, it's ironcladbrandstrategy.com. And I would highly, highly recommend uh, for you to pick up this book. Uh, uh, it's on Amazon, and I'm sure that it's available on other bookstores online also, uh, Forging an Ironclad Brand. Lindsay, thank you very much for being on the show. And uh, thank you, audience, for tuning in. And uh, for this episode, we have a ton of uh, amazing content coming up uh, in, the, in the following episodes. If you have missed uh, any of the episodes, uh, just uh, uh, visit this link, uh, growthbysevere.com slash live show. It's just a short link to the YouTube channel uh, that will take you to all, all amazing content like Lindsay. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me, Severe. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.